healthcare systems are under more pressure than ever before. So to adapt healthcare systems to today's demands really means having an understanding of how systems work. We're going to learn from the Irish healthcare system and two people who've done the work, meaning they've really taken time to learn about the system's interactions while engaging people. With me today is J.P. Swain, culture transformation and social movement leader with the Irish Health Society, HSC Values in Action, who has a background in social theory, and Margaret Stone, who is the social movement change leader, life coach, HSC, and has a lot of stories to bring to the conversation today. Both bring extensive experience in developing and leading programs to enable change in the culture in the Irish healthcare services. Both were presenters to the Organizational Network Analysis Summit for at least two or three years in a row, I'd say. Something like that. JP, I'm going to turn to you sir, first or open it up to both of you. But how did we get here in terms of leading human-centered organizations? What assumptions was the existing healthcare system built on? They certainly weren't human-centered assumptions. I don't think I'm pretty clear about that. They were definitely ideas of how the body functions and what a working body is able to do and what a not working body is able to do. This was very much around that idea of of the modern medical system, let's just say, in terms of an explosion of buildings and systems and funding and getting people in and out, really track parallel to the Industrial Revolution, to mass modernization, to the last two centuries on the planet compared to the other millions of years that life has existed. So a health system, it's a very modern idea. And it really was a function of getting people from a state of not being able to work or being productive to returning to some sort of work or productivity as soon as possible. That's why governments invested in them. That's why we reinvested our taxes in them. Within that, of course, I'm painting a very, I suppose, Hobbesian picture there. Of course, people cared. Of course, people wanted to care. Of course, people were drawn towards caring. But the values are the principles by which we set up health systems. It's a fair assessment to say they were never human-centered in their origin. As we evolve throughout these last number of centuries, obviously, so does our politics, so does our sociology, so does our morality. We hope, I like to think so, even though sometimes I doubt it. Within that, of course, cultures of care start to emerge and different practices in medicine and nursing and in the allied health professions throughout university, throughout academia. So there's lots of knowledge that starts to grow and questions that start to get asked and answered about how we best go about caring for people. That's where we start to see the emergence of human-centered practice, of human-centered consideration. But even at that, there would have been an imbalance with how the system was designed and laid out to run and maybe the practices that were emerging within it. So you're in a situation where you've possibly got a system at tension with the people who work in it and are trying to perform care and the people who are visiting it trying to be cared for. I suppose that brings us Fast forward up to date, I suppose, to quite a mixed picture. We've got assumptions that drive health services. Every modern health service will have a strategy and a mission and a vision and say a lot of words around person-centered care and mean them and want that to be the way that it is. But equally, they may well be pushing up against a system that was never quite built to meet that demand. We could have a lot of fun exploring the intricacies of that problem, but in many ways may not matter for too much longer because of the pace of change we're seeing in society with exploding populations, people living so much longer, and also fast advancement of technology in healthcare. That's really changing the idea of what a healthcare system is or is going to be in, in 5, 10, or 20 years time from now. So it's an area of constant change, of constant consideration. And I suppose what me and Margaret are very focused on is Okay, there's a lot there. That's a big system consideration. But what are the values that underpin that? The values that's going to underpin the operating of the current and future health system? And how do those values show up in the doing of healthcare uh, that the system is privileging? Is that what we'd see then as the leverage area for transforming a system or bringing it so it's more congruent with itself? Values? It's definitely one of them. I mean, there's 134,000 people working in the Irish Health Service. You're talking to two of them today. If you run the database down 100,000 yeah. and pick two different people, they might say some different things than Margaret and I will say to you today. That's understandable. That's reasonable. You could absolutely say that need is a key leverage of what's required in healthcare. You could talk about finance being a key leverage of what's required in healthcare. But equally, we know that health has 
persisted to be an area that is provided from human beings to human beings. It's a labor-intensive process. It requires a highly resourced person who understands an awful lot of complex scientific uh, technical material in order to help the person who comes to need to be helped. And all of that data and information is primarily stored in the human brain. And all of those relationships are primarily done from one human to another. So in terms of the nature of that service or how it's going to be delivered, I think the human factors, such as the values that we bring to how we do that work, and the behaviors that we promote and visibly give every day to how we show up to that work become a key character forming function of how you say what is the nature of the service. The nature of the service very much dictates uh, its capacity to change. Human beings are remarkably capable of change and pivoting and doing one thing on a Wednesday and pivoting to something else on a Thursday. We wouldn't have weeks and weekends if we weren't. We're capable of moving from one task to another. We have quite fluid and dynamic skill sets. People talk about humans like they're incapable of change. That's not true at all. We change constantly. Sometimes they're skeptical of change. Sometimes they don't want it, but it doesn't mean they're not capable. So I think in order to meet the challenges of future healthcare through and with the people who are doing the healthcare becomes one of your key elements of how you're going to get where you need to get. That leads me to narrative. Margaret, listening to that, when you look at the narrative that has evolved, all systems evolve. And they evolve in either elegant or clunky ways in systems, at least. What have you seen shift in terms of narrative as you watch things change over the years? While JP was answering, I was thinking, hmm, how would I answer? And I was visualizing the various projects that we have around the country. When I say projects, that's hospitals, healthcare settings, the regions that we're working with. We work at scale within areas. If I think of the key stakeholders in the conversations, it's always maybe a slightly different uh, reason or objective in which they want to look at culture change. But it is for the same outcome. JP, when you talk about people, so often in my past work, I've had managers saying work would be so much easier if people weren't involved. People get in the way. And I think that is the core essence of it, really. How do we enhance the workplace whereby people get on better with each other and the cultures. But the motivations have definitely changed and evolved, particularly in the last two or three years. The overall mission is to build that consistent culture right across the health services. There are many people we meet that are living the behaviours, which I'm happy to talk about in a moment, the values which we've translated into behaviours. You see that in them and they turn up at work living those behaviours but we want it to be consistent right across the services. There's an area that we have just commenced work with, a local hospital. The manager really feels strongly, and I totally agree with her, around what do they want to achieve out of culture change. And what they're looking at is retention. We're talking about an aging population. They see people heading towards retirement, and they're really nervous about losing the name, the culture of a hospital that's really embedded in the local community and something they're very, very proud of. So we haven't gone into that area saying there's a problem. We've gone into that area to say what's working well here and how do we ensure that it's maintained when staff leave with the new staff and new diversity, of course, that has been introduced in recent years as well in a lot of our health services. It's a host of motivations really right across the services. The core reason behind it all and the reason that we have a dedicated team, it's not just myself and JP, thank God. There's five of us, it's not many either, but there's five of us within a unit that is dedicated to looking at culture and engagement in the health services. That says a lot about the organisation as well, that they're dedicated to that change. But when a manager picks up the phone in various different areas, it's for different reasons. It might be a good time actually to talk about those behaviours. Will I go into that in a little bit more detail? Because I think that's really the the whole piece around this before we start sharing any stories and has particular relevance. If you looked up the health service executive on Google search or your search engine is, you'll find up on the front page our values of the organization, our care, compassion, trust and learning. But what does that mean? How do you know 
that one hospital is living it, one person is living it. How do you know what that looks like? How do you know as a patient or a family member of a patient in a hospital? What was done back in 2016 is the values of the organisation were translated into Session 9 behaviours within two of our healthcare areas as a pilot. Those nine behaviours were divided into, I suppose, three, if you can visualise three dimensions, there's nine behaviours and there's three behaviours within each dimension. The first dimension is about ourselves and how we reflect on how we turn up to work. What do we bring to work? How do we manage ourselves? How do we recognise if we're stressed and if that's having a knock-on effect with patients, families, service users and so on? The second dimension is about our colleagues, how we interact with our colleagues, how we offer a helping hand, how we challenge toxic behaviour, which is challenging in itself even when I say that. The third dimension then is around patients and service users and there's three behaviours there in that particular area. So to name them, there's nine behaviours in total. Am I putting myself in other people's shoes, being one of them, around the personal dimension? Am I aware that my actions can impact on how other people feel? Am I aware of my own stress and how I deal with it? And even though that's within the personal dimension, obviously having that self-awareness will have a knock-on effect with our colleagues and with our patients and service users. With our colleagues then acknowledging the work of our colleagues staying out of your silos, looking left and right, leaning out and reaching out to your colleagues and acknowledging the work that they do, asking them how you can help them. And as I said, challenging toxic attitudes and behaviours. And that that one, Donna, is particularly interesting. A lot of the feedback we get around challenging toxic attitudes is that within such a large organisation, there obviously are some toxic attitudes. Not everybody can get on, but actually giving staff the permission to bring balance to a conversation, to maybe stop some conversations that they're not very comfortable with, the grapevine spreading of gossip or whatever it is, or within our organisation as well, talking about our organisation, what's being said about our organisation publicly as well. Having pride, what we hear back around this is that people feel they're really giving confidence and permission by their managers as well, but by the organisation to say it's okay to challenge toxic attitudes. You don't have to sit by and watch it. You can actually do something about it. Even though it's the most challenging of the behaviours, it's the one that we get feedback the most once people get their head around what that actually means. The third dimension, not to be forgotten, and one of the main drivers is obviously our patients and service users, but all of the other behaviours feed into this, using my name and or your name keeping people informed, explaining the now and the next and doing an extra kind thing. And this would have come from a review of complaints and feedback from service users. These are the areas that we wanted to focus on more. So you can see the behaviours are very simple. They're very recognisable. They're very tangible. And you can see if somebody is living those behaviours or not. So there's nothing too complicated about them. And that's the whole focus of our culture change programme looking at how we can spread those behaviours right across the organisation. Beautiful. I love that. Now, you've both been involved in the, I'm going to call it a grand experiment, but it's a grand experience as well of orchestrating of the transformation more to human-centred. I know one of the tools you've used is organisational network analysis, because that's how I found you. (laughs) What have you learned from that experience? And what have you seen shift in the nature of people's spirits and relationships to one another? It's been a fascinating journey for us. It wasn't like an intellectual journey, particularly. This was a fundamental efficiency for us. And the terms of size and scale of our organization, as I said earlier, there's 134,000 humans. So we can talk about the Irish Health Service, it feels quite nebulous. But when you think of the size and scale of those interpersonal relationships, it's quite enormous. The Irish Prison Service has three and a half thousand staff members. The Irish Army has 9,000 men and women in it. So if it was any of those sort of things, we'd be done already. The transformation would have occurred. But with that sort of scale, that kind of 10x scale on what should be comparable large entities, obviously we needed some kind of efficiency. We couldn't imagine that a train-the-trainer model would cascade through our systems or that just some kind of, well, the leader said it, therefore everybody's heard it, therefore through chaining of command, dropping down, and you know it, so now you're going to do it. You know better, so do better. That kind of assumption could never have worked. In truth, those kind of assumptions were tried in many cases in different change programs in various 
corners of this vast system too. We definitely felt the pressure for our platform to be meaningful, for our platform to give our people some confidence that we were going about it in the right way. We had to start somewhere efficiently. Starting with a really small group of people wasn't going to be enough. Imagining that everybody was going to get the message at the same time was illogical. We know communication doesn't work like that. So the next best guess we could take was to take a look at, well, what's happening in the informal part of the organization? How can we reach the middle influence? How can we look at where local organizations actually operate? Who actually holds the sway? What actually makes something happen rather than not happen? The nature of how a service is delivered. Yes, you can write down on a PowerPoint and say, here's the four things we do, but you won't give me any sense of the human factors that are involved in that play. Within our plan to try and reach into the culture, first step was to find out, okay, who gets noticed? Who's recognizable? Who's influential? Who carries the values of the organization? Who would their peers pick out as being the best people to start with if you want to understand and affect the culture? And then we just let their peers select them and we start there with that percentage of the population. Our hope is that the behaviors will will work their way through and with those local change agents who are given through their own agency some willingness to say, I see these behaviors as core to our culture, as core to the humanity of our service. And I'm going to back them with my efforts and my integrity and my identity. And I'm going to hope that my peers see me do that and are persuadable to see this is how we may be the best way we can intentionally show up to work and intentionally demonstrate our culture on a day-to-day basis. ONA definitely opened up those possibilities and definitely helped us to understand not just the potential for transformation once you've uncovered the informal network, but I suppose perhaps that organizational MRI as well, understanding that the assumption of what's on the organizational chart or what's in a particular Excel file or personnel file or staff list isn't the full picture. And allow people from a distance, like myself and Margaret have to work because we can't be everywhere all the time, to really get underneath the hood of a particular area and learn about it at speed and at scale and then make recommendations locally to say, okay, you could do anything, but maybe try these five things first. That might get you somewhere you wouldn't otherwise have got to. So yeah, it's fascinating, but it's also at our scale, it's necessity, I would argue, to try and understand the networks. If I can add to that, I think some of the areas that we're working with, when you talk about they visualize who are the people within your area that you go to for information that you trust, as JP says, that are informally connected and how magical to be able to get that list of names. But areas would think we already know those people. But what's super about the ONA is it uncovers some of the people they never knew. Maybe the quieter people that are still influential. And that's really what the magic of the ONA is. We know the regulars, the people who are always picked for steering groups and committees and organizing a going away party and all the rest. They'll turn up. They'll be some of the people who'll be nominated, but it'll also uncover the people we don't know about. And I think that's the pure magic of it. And it's growing the future of our organization in identifying some of those people. And they would say it gives them motivation as well to kind of, oh, I am one of those people. It helps them turn up to work as well and feel like there's something to give back. So I think that's a very important part of the ONA. I would add one other thing to that as well. It's not totally peculiar to health, but it's definitely a factor of health is that well, people are complex and messy. So therefore, people's health problems are complex and messy if you want to be holistic and engage with the health of the whole human. And because of that, therefore, different people work in different ways and have different trainings in order to help that whole person. So you've got one person's health need, let's say it's a mental health need or a cancer need, right? You've got an entire different web of people that surround the care of that human for their episodes Mm -hmm. of care. As a consequence, health services, in their best efforts to be compassionate and meet human need, hire vastly different people with vastly different training and set them to work across large geographical areas. We need an occupational therapist. Okay, you can have a quarter of this one because we need one over here for these guys. Okay, we need a social worker. Okay, right, I'd love to give you four, but I've only got two. So you need to split those people out across a vast geographical area. As a result, the rapid deployment of resources or people who can help with help, it has been a constant state of flux and challenge with good intention, with the right intention to improve the level of holistic care for humans. But as a result, the system effect and the network effect is all of those people are working in complex, multidisciplinary, 
environments where there are people in and out of different teams, taking up different areas of work, momentarily covering different sections or different clinics. So the relations that fuel that and the human factors that fuel that are dramatically complex in and of themselves. Getting down to who actually knows what's going on or who the people who are really sensitive and connected has, I would say, a slightly extra value in the health service. Because even if you didn't even put behaviors in there, if you didn't even say have culture as a goal, just shortcutting your route to connectivity actually has huge advantages in a sprawling complex system. The fact that we get to, to find them, work with them, and give them a challenge of saying, can you shape the culture in your organization? Can you make these humane behaviors the likely living soul of the organization on a day-to-day basis? Could you help with that? And it's just a privilege from our end in order to open up those pathways and then allow people to be the leaders that they are. We don't need to tell them how to do it after that. We can trust capable people to shape a culture worth having and do the work worth doing in the part of the country they live in and the part of the health service they're the stewards of. It's a real privilege, to be honest, for Margaret and I to work together with the rest of our team on this, but also to be helpful to those other teams and clusters and networks of staff out there uh, to do their work, but in a way that holds our work. It's a genuine privilege. Even from a staff retention point of view, those staff who have been nominated as champions, they remain with the organization for longer. They feel like they belong. They feel respected. We had an example recently of some of the COVID services that were stood down, the call centres, but some of those staff were re-interviewed for other government services. The majority of people who have been nominated as champions turned out to be successful at interview. It's interesting what, what comes up time and time again. There's another example where we had somebody who was on a temporary contract and when the values and action was present in the area they were working, there was a very strong culture there. And they moved to another area when they got a permanent contract and they looked to move back after six weeks they, because values and action wasn't in place where they were. The culture was very different. There's a lot of evidence that it is working and it is working around staff retention and staff feeling happier within their workplace. That's such a powerful statement, given the trends today where you've got a lot of burnout, people yeah. stretched to the max. They want to be in a place where they feel supported. So that makes yeah. perfect sense. You've both shown what I would consider to be a very high level of both courage and commitment to understanding these systems, to diving deep and doing the reflection, the introspection, and then the action that it takes to assemble all these pieces into a deeper understanding. What do you feel you've learned the most from this whole experience, professionally, personally? I'm happy to share this because my background would be in the whole area of learning and development and coaching and one-to-one and top-down and so on and train the trainer and all the rest. One of my biggest learnings, uh, we work on the model of a social movement and viral change and peer-to-peer influence. For me, that's been the biggest short-cutting for any interaction. Who knows who? Who's connected to who? Getting the peers together, getting the right people in the right environment. For me, that has been one of the biggest learnings. The other is something that's very emergent post-COVID and as different ways of working are emergent. We had to do our first online event during COVID, whereby we normally would have had people in a room, very connected, like we're talking about peer-to-peer and influence. And we're like, how can that happen virtually? But it was still magical. It was still magical virtually. Obviously, there was a need for people to plug in, but sharing of stories of where the behaviours have been lived within the area that we were working with and it was very magical. We have learned how to adapt what we're doing to where we're going towards the future, working in a more hybrid world where we don't have to meet everybody in person. We do definitely need to meet them in person in some ways, but we can work smarter virtually as well. Part of the learning during COVID was we did a review of the whole model of values in action because we were five years in at that stage, roughly. Uh, from pilot and it was a good time to have a review as we were starting to emerge from COVID last year and that involved getting back in touch with a lot of our key stakeholders and listening and being very very open to improvements. One of the pieces that came out of that was around more local ownership and local identity with regards to huge vastness of our organisation 
I see that coming to fruition now. Local areas are really taking ownership. They're nearly saying, okay, let it with us. We'll let you know how we get on. Whereas before they'd be looking for a lot more support. So that local ownership and feeling that it's their project is really, really magical to see that happening. So it's more of a mentoring and coaching role that we're having rather than being as hands-on with the project teams as we may have been in the past. That's been a beautiful learning on my behalf. I'm enjoying that experience. Did you want to add anything to that? No, I think Margaret summed it up. I said no, but I'm going to talk for about five minutes. Uh, <laughs> Margaret summed up a lot of what I wanted to say, and I would endorse all of that. I could add one thing, I suppose. My inner monologue has changed dramatically since doing this work. And like the phrase, okay, cool, but how? Is what comes into my head nearly in every iteration of a conversation around culture or change. It's okay, cool, but how are you? How are we going to do that? And how do you know that's going to work? How do you know they, they understood you? And how is it? you think that's going to be different when you leave just ask a lot of pretty straightforward how questions nearly all the time now and it probably makes me really irritating but it's working in a way that, that where you understand how networks behave and how behavior in itself in simple binary interactions and that when that's slightly different that the outcome is different that the feel of it is different equally when the networks are broad and connected that the information flow is just so very different than when it's small and disconnected and just a disconnected node of staff working in a particular location. Just the knowing how different those two ways of being can be makes it just next to impossible for me not to keep asking how. I'm terribly annoying now in terms of anyone's assumptions about how something is going to work. I think I'm happy in my skin being annoying about assumptions because people are incredibly capable. Uh, people are incredibly motivated more often than not. I'm talking about health people because I love working with health people. They tend to work really hard to get their qualifications to be who they need to be in the service. They tend to come with a huge passion and a host of reasons why they want to make a positive impact in someone else's life and someone else's world. Half the battle I find is just let them be awesome. Let them be who they want to be. And uh, unlocking that potential and unlocking that kind of radical localization of this is us, this is how we do our business. But not having it in a kind of a way that's closed or cut off to ideas, but that's energetic, forward-looking, is a really inspiring bunch of interactions I get to have doing this work. It definitely changes your perspective on, okay, cool, but how? Because more often than not, it's what people are going to do locally that's going to matter. So unleashing that power of their own confidence, respecting their own efforts to even just get to the starting line and having adult-to-adult interactions at an organizational level definitely opens up all sorts of new possibilities. The more I do this work, the more I think that empowered and teams version of an organization is work I want to keep doing and I want to keep sustaining. I could give you another two days of talking about the other yeah. things I've learned, but just the route to localization with empowered teams has been great. Yeah. But as hard as it was and the interruption as hard as it was on our service. In a strange way, I'm optimistic about the possibilities it has unleashed for the wicked problems in our services of people living longer and care getting more complex and us being much more successful. Every year, there's a new pharmaceutical technology that will take away the problems of a particular disease that were hitherto unmanageable. Every year, there's a different robot skeleton that's in production that's going to help someone maybe walk again who could never walk again. All of those things are thrilling and the future of healthcare is just so fascinating. But at the same time, we also need to understand the longer we all live, the different we're going to have to understand how we're going to care for each other and where our values are going to be, what home is going to look like and what end of life is going to look like and where we continue to show up with our values at difficult times and adapting to new ways of working, to new ideas of healthcare, to a different version of modernity in the system than the industrial revolution modernity that fueled those systems we created in the first place. Maybe a digital modernity where localized empowered care and people being the architects of their own healthcare is a much more interesting future that maybe people feel is more possible now since we all had to adapt to a dramatic change collectively. I feel like that sense of mobilization towards something together in health is there. We've just had an awful lot of really exhausted people who are coming slowly to their learnings that they've taken from that. Is there a connection between all the work you've done and the speed of adaptability that you saw over the COVID period? Because the more connection there is between people, the easier it is for people to adapt because they know they've got the support systems. Yeah. I was working with the Department of Public Health during COVID. We were all redeployed 
one of the services that was set up overnight. Whenever I linked back in with the team, I always wondered, I said, I have a hypothesis that I don't have time to research or look at, but does something like COVID fast forward culture change in an organisation? Because ways of working, the connections, the influence, knowing who to pick up the phone to, to get something done, to look after a family, it was phenomenal. I caught myself lucky in working in such an environment. Part of the review that we did post-COVID was in one particular area who had just gone live in 2019 uh, and everything was paused. The project team wasn't meeting anymore and the drivers and so on. And they were just ready to go. And we had a load of fantastic, really enthusiastic people at a boot camp, at a launch of the behaviours pre-COVID. The feedback that we got you know, in the last year or so was that even though the engine room, as we call it, the project team wasn't meeting, there was nobody saying you need to do this, you need to do that. What JP speaks so strongly and passionately about is people wanting to make a difference. They continued to lift the behaviours, they continued to spread those behaviours throughout COVID. We've seen some of the videos of it with people having a picture of themselves on their gowns and so on, but there's many more examples like that right across the services. And people felt they needed the behaviours and values in action more than ever, but there's some fantastic examples. And that's what they want to hold on to, that paused with their process, not with their behaviours, the movement was still going, but with their process, when we relaunched the with them, it took them a while to figure out what does the picture look like? What do we need to retain in terms of ways of working? And we put a call out to more people who might have wanted to get involved so you could nominate, you could bring somebody along and so on. It was really interesting, the people who turned up in the room at the event that we had back in September last year. And reasons that they were coming, I have some of them written down here, actually just to remind myself because there's no harm, that they needed it now more than ever. They're working remotely. They need the behaviours and they need to connect with people. I was working with the hospital there two weeks ago and they were saying they've forgotten how to have coffee breaks. They're having the coffee breaks still at the desk. There's still this, this feeling of not connecting up with each other. That's a big issue in places. They're looking at the behaviours to help them reconnect to be energy energized, to feel part of a system again, where there are some people still working from home and remotely as well. It's really interesting how people are adapting the ways of working and using the behaviors to do that. They're looking at the behaviors to embed some of the other synergies that are possible in the areas like our health and well-being teams are now looking at how the values aligns with some of the work that they're doing and bringing it all together. So some fantastic joining up now of many processes. As you can imagine in an organisation this big, you might have a spreadsheet for one thing one day and another for another. This is bringing all of those communications together, which is super. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know whether I answered the question or whether I diverged there. But... <laughs> <laughs> it was a lovely diversion <laughs> and a lovely answer. In watching systems, there are what I would call signals and cues, things that tell you that you've accomplished this human-centered shift. What would you say were those signals and cues when you observe the behaviors and the interactions and the dynamics? Any particular stories come up that exemplify the switch from people being independent to people feeling very strongly connected? What were the cues? A good question, Donna. It's a consideration around when we bring maybe a leadership team together and, and begin to talk about what their particular challenges are, what they think culture is right now, where they'd like to see a chosen culture enable some new possibilities to support the experience of their people more. In those questions, everything feels a little bit theoretical still, right? <laughs> It's people in a room talking about other people. The thinking may be correct and people may have considered and sensible thoughts, but there's often that degree of distance or intellectual distance between the actual work and, and one, the people who are deciding maybe what it could be like. Once we get to work with practitioners and clinicians and people who are front-facing and seeing the public as they currently are in the health system, something changes a little in that. The greater challenge behaving in a certain way every day with consistency becomes more and more apparent. The idea of the complexity of healthcare, the variability of particular 
illnesses and diseases and different things at different times, even just the seasonality of, of where certain things at different times of the year are possible and impossible and all the effects, the rolling effect that can have on a culture. It becomes much more clear at that point around how you have to, in a very empowered way, pace this work and give people clear choices, respecting their wisdom, respecting their judgment, not pushing them harder than they're ready to go right now towards some theoretical goal, but equally trying to bring some balance and dynamism to a process that gets them to a point of mobilization in as short a time frame as is psychologically safe with that particular group. I'd say the third phase of that is actually once you hit a point of mobilization, it's like a strange unburdening that can occur in a room. Once a bunch of people are connected together who've actually gone through a process where their peers have said, well, someone thought we could have a better culture around here. And I thought of you, maybe could you be part of that process? Once you've got a hundred people who've had that experience of their peers saying to them, well, maybe you could do that because you're the one I think of when it comes to the answers to these questions. There's a strange and beautiful energy that happens where you can see the rate of possibilities just starts to rank up. You've gone from that theoretical space, you've moved into that kind of suspicious realism, which I think you need to have. But then once people have mobilized, something magical can take place and people can start to see okay, yeah, there is more than we can do. These behaviours make sense to me. And if we were all doing them all the time, then I can see the world being slightly different. Then I can see our waiting room being different. Then I can see the way we communicate and us finishing that process that we said was too hard to finish. Well, maybe we can finish it. Just that energy in and of itself is often a cue that moving in the right direction, that they're frankly moving in the right direction and they're starting to see and feel the culture improve. That may not last forever, but it may last long enough that some of the space that just wasn't there uh, starts to appear and some of those things that weren't just joining up start to join up and some of those things that were half started can get finished or abandoned or stopped because they're just not important enough or they're just too distracting. So I think definitely that process of going from conception and possibility to applied mobilization of your efforts still holds for me a great kind of magic and a great a great joy when we get to see it happening. I think it's worth saying that when we meet with leaders at the start they're waiting to hear what their role is. Send me the posters and send me the behaviour booklets and all the rest. And when we introduce the concept of the social movement and grassroots-led and peer-to-peer, they start to get it a bit, but they still want to know what their role is. And we create a process there. We guide them through that process where really they make a choice to make behaviours, their language, they work out loud. We encourage them to give vocal support to the grassroots, to lead the movement, visible support, walking the talk, starting team meetings, sharing stories of the behaviours, influencing their peers who may not be on board as much with it, getting the early converters and getting them to get others on board. That works really, really well as well. We all come to it at a different stage. Going out to meet the champions. And sometimes we put focused time to that, where we'd ask leaders to go out and meet the champions and hear about the work. And that has been absolutely magical as well throughout the process. There's an awful lot of layers behind all of this to enable it to happen. And I know JP talks about the how. I always come in with the why. JP and myself on a team, I'm like, but why? Why are we doing this? Forget about the how. Can we go back to the why? And so it's interesting. But Behind all of that organization of everything, what we say front of everything that we're doing is just very simply asking the champions to live the behaviors, to share the behaviors with others and the stories of the behaviors and to engage with others around it. And that's very simply all that we're doing. But very, very busy behind all of that to ensure that happens. And that can be hard to get your head around. It sounds very simple. But it's just the magic of unlocking the potential. Donna, I'd love you to come over if we were having an ignition event for you to come along. If we could box the energy in the room with a hundred and odd people, they just don't want to leave because it's just such a different language. And it's so invigorating. We do this because we love it, as you can hear. But we're not just doing it for, certainly not for the money, we're public service. We're doing it for our kids' future. We're doing it for a lot more than what's happening today. It's very much future-focused. And I think that's the passion that I think you hear coming across, hopefully on behalf of everybody within our movement. You know, they're very passionate about making a difference. They said to me recently, they've got their mojo back a little bit. They're 
kind of feeling a little bit disheartened, demotivated, and like realizing, well, actually, the way I turn up can change how my day is going to be. That's the magic for us, really. Yeah, beautiful. In business terms, when we talk about transformation, we often like to imagine that it's not a process that a small group of people have decided upon and thought through and done to a large population. But more often than not, there's an element of truth in that being a large part of the process, right? We talk about transformation because it's a nicer word than rationalization or shrinking or streamlining. Mm. A lot of the framing language around business processes is often done in a way to ingratiate the doer of the process to the world, themselves and others, right? I feel better about the thing that I'm doing, even though it affects someone negatively. I'm hoping that I've said it in a nice way, so it's going to affect them less worse or not as badly, even though maybe mm. I know intellectually that it will and i hope that the people watching think i'm a nice guy even though this transformation process maybe has some negative sides to it right when it comes to culture transformation it can't work that way it's never going to be effective you can want it you can use the language of it you can say and by the way we're going to be a human-centered organization well you can't cheat that test people on the ground will either know it is or it isn't because they've all been raised as humans by humans but they experience the organization not to value humanity they'll know about it regardless of what you say i like to think about it and just be honest about it and say if you want a human-centered organization well then maybe start with the humans at scale let them shape something that's clear and that fits with their humanity and allow yourself and your leadership to be led by a values base and a clear behavioral consensus on how your organization works and where you're going to take it in the future and allow the change to come, but give it some guide rails within which to happen, whereby people are going to stay with you rather than figure out that compensation or ingratiation is somehow going to be more successful than actual genuine human experience. But in my experience, and I think Margaret's experience and our team's experience, nothing really trumps that. Beautifully said. I have one more question for you. The question goes back to, do you need permission to do what you do? I used to do a lot of work for the Department of National Defense in Canada, and they always called the hierarchy the grown-ups, the ones that made all the decisions, and they all filtered down. What kind of response did you have in rolling this out with doctors, with the administration? How did they see this? What did you notice? It's a dialogue. That's the only way I can describe it. It's a dialogue. We talk and we listen. The organization has a view on culture. So it's in the governance, it's there. The corporate plan of the organization sets out a view of the desired culture and what they want it to be. We exist and we've existed for a long time and we are the culture and engagement team. So we have a job. We have a job for a reason because the organization wants people to work with their culture. So we're not making it up, but at the same time, for that to be someone's priority, for them to say that's more important than the thing I've already said is my priority this week, well, that's a dialogue, right? We try and approach it at some degree of humility. We try to be very respectful that the service areas of our organization, that's a euphemism to say the busy clinics, the busy hospitals, the busy GP surgeries, the busy waiting list managers need to stop something they're doing and talk to you about culture. Really respectful of the time it takes in order to help someone make a decision. And when they make a decision that they can have capacity and resources to do something meaningful, it's a constant dialogue. But we wouldn't really have it any other way because... Ultimately, if it's not a a dialogue and a consensus and a partnership and a co-design, then whose culture is it? It's somebody's idea from something they learned once, as opposed to something that is meaningful within the human connected network that delivers that part of the service to that part of the public. We know it's the long way around, but we think it's the right way around in order to do this kind of work. Any stories you want to add? (laughs) Uh, it's interesting just even that question that you've just put key to success in every area is the buy-in of the leaders they have to be behind it 100 they have to be behind it leaders matter and they need to give the freedom necessary to make it happen i think that's key we don't go banging down any doors saying here we are we're putting this on to you it can't happen that way it needs to happen the other way around really at the moment we're we're at a reach of around 25% of the organization at present we've never had so many queries though from areas so i think the change 
that people are able to bring their heads up above water, look left and right and kind of going, something needs to happen here. Or staff are saying they need something, the change ways of working and so on. And culture seems to be what people are looking at. So the leaders are now looking for that more than they ever did before. They're seeing it as an enabler, really, and as a platform, as we call it, to support everything else that happens rather than an extra bit that's been added on towards the end something nice you can do or something nice you don't do it's something that enables everything else to happen that shift is definitely starting to happen which is great and we have some super leaders around the organization who are really going ahead of other areas other areas are waiting to see whether it works or not being very frank which is great and post-covid if that is a period or if that is a time let's just say in the where we are now whatever that is in 2023 We've never had a higher kind of pace of demand. We're crazy busy right now, which is a great way to be. But there's something fueling it. As Margaret explains, there's a want to reconnect or understand the organization. We've got an entire cohort working in the organization who've not met each other. They've literally been hired and pivoted straight to remote work and have been dutifully fulfilling their functions. But nonetheless, their induction into the organization has been through videos and zoom calls and everything else maybe they've met some people but the level of connectivity there and that sense of purpose and identity and location and belonging has to have been a test it has to have been a challenge and equally we've had really high numbers of retirements the great resignation happened here too people started to reevaluate what sort of way they were going to manage this kind of hiatus if this remote working thing was going to work for them or not lots of have voted with their feet and said no not for me i think my time is done So that creates its own organizational dynamic. I think that sense of getting your arms around your culture is something that leaders are really seeing. Definitely, it's been a healthy test for us uh, to be agile and adaptive, to not just say, well, actually, this is how we do our program. We're not really interested in that. We'll change our program. If the circumstances are right to say, well, that's the route to helping that part of the organization get their arms around their culture. That's the harder way around for us to do it. We could just say, well, that's our program. That's it. Take it or leave it. But I suppose that's not how we're wired. It's not how we're motivated. We see the higher purpose that ultimately the culture in our health service matters to us and it matters to the public. We're open to the any means necessary and the, any collaboration necessary and any kind of efforts necessary to try and make sure that we can be helpful when required. It's nice to play that part. It's really important to reiterate, we are one team. There are many other teams in our organization who all share this kind of commitment and are all as committed to our health services as we are. That's why it's invigorating work because we get to connect with them. We're not doing it on our own at all. We're just playing our part in what we hope is a meaningful effort to keep our services as humane and as human-centered as they can be and to continue to grow that way into the future. Anything you want to add, Margaret? A great addition to one of our project teams in one of the areas that we're just launching in is we have a clinical consultant and a non-consultant NCHD. What does that stand for, JP? A consultant hospital doctor. Hospital doctor, thank you. Two words missing. And it's so encouraging to have representation from that discipline staff because it's just hard to get them released and what have you, but their commitment is fabulous. And just thinking about a story that was shared at the project team meeting the last day by the consultant, every time... He comes to the project team. I'm always thinking, where should he be right now? I feel the pressure of taking him away from something really important. But what he is giving and what he is committing to the health services is really strong. So it's great to have his voice. But he shared a lovely story. We start all of our team meetings with stories of the behaviours being lived. And he shared a story of how every contact counts, really. A lady who was feeling very, very nervous. She had lost her husband recently. She was in his care. And when she was going home, she was just really, really tentative. He sat down with her. He explained probably for the fourth or fifth time what the next steps were, the now and the next. Then he wrote down his mobile number and gave it to her. And he said, when you get home, if there's any questions that you have that you can't think of now, I'd be here, I'd be at the end of the line, I'm only down the road. And that's what I said about it being a local community hospital. It's not a community hospital, but it's within a local area. It was just so magical to see that connection still being made in a very, very busy world nowadays. And how his influence and sharing stories like that with his peers will have a knock-on effect. 
So I think that for me, that has been a great addition lately to an area that we found it harder to have their doctors included. So it's great that we're going in the right direction there as well. I can't thank you enough for finding time in your day to have this conversation. I know it's going to be inspiring to other healthcare organizations and certainly to anybody that thinks that changing organizational cultures is a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year operation. I heard that not long ago when I was at the World Agility Forum in 2019, something about taking 30 years to change a company culture. All you got to do is understand systems, understand that emotion runs through the system faster than any fact it will ever do. And you have a lot of capacity. It's just so exciting to watch people flourish in environments where they feel safe and know they can do something. That's just brilliant. Thank you both very much. Huge leaders in this field. I couldn't be more privileged to be talking to you today. Donna, it's been our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that both Margaret and JP and the initiative of the Irish Health Service are global leaders in embarking on the whole transformation effort and the capacity and capability building within a system that was not designed for the realities that we have today. I, I would urge you to listen to the opportunities that you have within your own organization just listening to what people are talking about, how they're thinking, the energies, the levels of energy that are available for doing the work, the heart after uh, two years of a pandemic and, and much more. See opportunities to reveal the invisible forces, the invisible um, strength that operates within the organization. That's my first point. The second point is that we are at a place where superficial changes and tinkering around with little shifts so that we can say that we've been innovating. We're past that. It's also very clear that the health services that we have, certainly in North America, have really taken a beating with the COVID pandemic and the demands on the services and the people inside of it. And yet there's been not enough focus placed on adapting and adjusting the system to meet that kind of shift in reality. Lots of opportunity for human beings to tap into the deeper potential that we each have and collectively have to find these adaptive moments and these opportunities to dive deeper, become more human in how we treat one another, more human in terms of how we organize ourselves to get work done to relate to a world that is volatile and rapidly, rapidly changing. Thank you for joining me. My name is Donna Jones. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and all those other good places. Thanks for listening and feel free, please, to share this widely and get back to me with any comments.